Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, and thank you for joining us with Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that kind of tackles some of the more difficult topics, and uh, one of those topics that we're going to talk about today is one that's kind of near and dear to my heart, which is trauma and childhood. Um, I have a wonderful guest, um, Casey Gwynn, who is an attorney who was the uh, city attorney for San Diego up until 2004, and he has done amazing work in the field of domestic violence, especially child abuse. And uh, Casey, welcome. Thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks, Heather. Great to be with you. Good. Um, You have a very rich background, and rather than just reading your resume, can you just start out by telling us why did you get interested in domestic violence and the the impacts of domestic violence on children in particular? Well, eventually it became personal to me, but it didn't start out personal. I I grew up in Northern California, went to Stanford University, went to UCLA School of Law. Uh, My wife and I moved to San Diego in 1985. I became a prosecutor. And I was actually sick the day they did special assignments in the San Diego City Attorney's Office. And I came back that following Monday. And the only kind of special area that nobody had signed up for was child abuse and domestic violence. Uh, And I thought, well, I'm against this. Yeah, I'm against this. I, I think I'm against it. So I might as well dive into it. I knew absolutely nothing about anything. I was totally incompetent walking into a courtroom. And I started handling child abuse and domestic violence cases in 1985. Amazing. Did you have any special training in this area? You were just kind of thrown into it. I really did not. And early on, I certainly didn't come to it, particularly from a feminist perspective or really from what I I would have thought was a personal perspective. It was just kind of my general sense that violence and abuse wasn't okay and it was wrong, and I saw that it could have a dramatic impact on people's lives. Back in those days, if we were prosecuting domestic violence cases at all, it was only if the victim wanted to, quote, press charges or if the victim was, you know, incredibly willing to go to court. And most victims weren't. They're scared to death, and it's complicated, and they've got a lot of complex dynamics going on in their relationship. So we didn't have very many cases. I was handed a shoebox of child abuse and domestic violence cases that had about 25 three-by-five cards in it, and that was the beginning of my career. The Things changed fairly rapidly, though. Early on, it became very clear to me that victims shouldn't have to press charges, that victims should be able to rely on the criminal justice system to do our job and to try to protect them and to try to hold abusers accountable. So I started doing what was called evidence-based prosecution and said, you know, if you can participate, that's great. But if you can't, if I can prove the case, I'm going to go forward anyway. Started that in early 1986, and within months, we had a judge arrested in San Diego for beating his pregnant spouse. And the case came to me, the new domestic violence unit of the city of San Diego. And uh, I filed charges against you or shouldn't do, made myself a witness in the case by talking to her and she said, you know, he's a judge, he'll get away with it, nobody's ever going to be able to stop him. And I thought, well, you know, he doesn't know me, I'm going to, I'll hold him accountable. <laughs> and uh, I filed charges, and months later I went to trial and lost on television, lost the case. The jury hung 11 to 1 for not guilty, so I convinced oh, one person God. that the judge was guilty. And then uh, the case was dismissed, and that was the beginning of my career uh, in this work 30 years ago. And had it not been for a group of feminist advocates that then came and visited me, led by the founder of the first domestic violence shelter in San Diego, Ashley Walker. I wouldn't be on this radio show today, and I don't think I'd be doing this work. Ashley showed up at my office with a number of women that were working in the field, and she said, you need us, and we need you, and you need to invest yourself with us, and we will invest ourselves with you. And uh, we did. We invested our lives in each other, and 30 years later, Ashley has long since retired from the YWCA of San Diego County, but she is now the chair of the board of our organization, Alliance for Hope International. She's my boss. So that journey of 30 years uh, has been incredibly significant, and that was my beginning, was as a prosecutor, and it was really from that journey that led me to go on to be the elected prosecutor of San Diego 
uh, and running a staff of 350. And then during that journey, we figured out how tough it was for victims to get the help they needed. And they had to go from agency to agency and tell their story over and over and over. So we slowly developed a multi-agency model where we brought lots of services together. That started in 1990. And by 2002, we brought 25 agencies together under one roof in what was called the San Diego Family Justice Center, serving male victims, female victims, LGBT community victims, but trying to bring all the services to one place, cops, prosecutors, advocates, doctors, nurses, therapists, chaplains. And in that journey, that Family Justice Center model really started developing. Oprah Winfrey profiled it in January of 2003 on national television. And once it went on Oprah, it was just amazing how fast it started moving across the United States and around the world. And so when I left office in 2004, that became my passion was not only starting family justice centers, but as part of the San Diego Center, we had started a camp called Camp Hope focused on children exposed to domestic violence. So we started the camp just in San Diego. We started the Family Justice Center just in San Diego. And today, uh, in 2015, we now have 100 Family Justice Centers across the United States. We have centers in 10 countries. Uh, camp Hope started in San Diego, then it went statewide in California. And this last summer, we had Camp Hope in five different states. So that journey has just continued, and uh, 30 years later, I'm more passionate today, I think, than I ever have been about the challenge of addressing both childhood trauma and domestic violence and child abuse and the intersections of those things as they connect to sexual assault, uh, to um, elder abuse, to human trafficking. There's just so many intersections in all of this, and when you look at major social problems in America, it's hard to find a major social problem that at its core doesn't connect to childhood trauma and to kids growing up in a home with some mix of violence and abuse and drugs and alcohol. I think you're right. I, You know, we were talking a little bit off air, and I, I've come to that conclusion regarding domestic violence. Uh, if you look at so many of these social ills, from homelessness to, you know, uh, all sorts of problems, and you start peeling back all those layers, and you find that abuse down at the bottom um, and if, you know, whether it's in childhood or, or if it starts in adulthood, you, that there mm -hmm. is that commonality of that abuse. And that's what we need to be looking at, and that's what we need to be dealing with. And it sounds like you have come up with a, a, wonderful, a wonderful model for doing that. If you'd like to join us on our show, I know that there are some people in the chat room already. Um, if you'd like to give us a call, ask a question, say uh, some comments for our guest, Casey Gwynn, please do. The call-in number is 646-378-0430. 646-378-0430. We're going to talk a little bit more about this whole childhood trauma thing. Now, I know in my studies I've encountered the acronym, the ACE test, or the ACE mm -hmm. study. Um, but not everybody's familiar with that. What is the ACE study? Well, ACE stands for the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, and it's an amazing uh, study, one of the largest longitudinal studies that's ever been done in the United States, looking at the impact of adverse childhood experiences on adult illness, disease, and criminality. It actually started uh, with a dear friend of mine, Dr. Vincent Felitti, who was the head of preventative medicine for Kaiser Permanente in San Diego 20-plus years ago. And he was actually running an obesity clinic in San Diego. And the goal of the clinic was to cause men or women who were more than 300 pounds overweight to be able to lose 300 pounds in less than a year without surgical intervention. And so they had developed a very specialized diet and exercise program, and the program worked. They were actually seeing people lose 300 pounds, both men and women. But after they lost the 300 pounds, they were seeing a lot of complicated psychological issues with them. They were seeing uh, one of the women tried to commit suicide after losing 300 pounds. Others would lose the weight and then instantaneously start gaining it again after being so successful. One woman gained 37 pounds in three weeks after oh. she had lost 300 pounds. And Dr. Felitti was so you know, troubled by it. Why would this be? They'd been successful. They'd lost all this weight. So he began looking deeper into their uh, childhood histories, into their life histories, 
and he found that virtually every one of them had been sexually molested as children. And it became clear that morbid obesity in many situations was a protective mechanism because morbid obesity is physically protective and sexually protective and emotionally protective. And that was the beginning of the ACE study was this finding around childhood sexual abuse. And then Dr. Felitti started looking at other kinds of trauma markers that were starting to show up in the lives of some of those he was working with. And soon after that, he got connected to the Centers for Disease Control and Dr. Robert Onda. And CDC was very interested in what they were doing. And so they created a very comprehensive questionnaire to be administered to 17,000 Kaiser Permanente patients in San Diego, mostly middle class, mostly in their 50s and 60s, that they started asking this whole social history about their growing up years and their lives, particularly focused on what happened before the age of 18 in their lives. And in that journey, they identified these whole series of markers that seemed to be very significant and predictive of later health issues in life. And eventually that was distilled down to 10 questions that make up the ACE test or the ACE scoring index. And those 10 questions, which are each worth one point in the ACE score, connect to things like witnessing domestic violence as a child, being physically abused as a child, being sexually abused as a child, having a parent who has a drug or alcohol issue, having a parent who has a mental health issue, uh, divorce, parents being divorced when children are young is a childhood trauma marker, having a parent who's incarcerated uh, as you're growing up. So each of these markers, including uh, abandonment as a child and verbal and emotional abuse as a child, they started measuring. And as they have measured these now longitudinally, they're stunningly predictive of long-term health issues and long-term kind of emotional and psychological issues. So that's the ACE study. You can go to acestudy.org or acestohigh.com to kind of see on the Internet. You can Google the ACE study now. And, of course, I just recently wrote a book about the ACE study, but that's really the heart of what the ACE study is. Well, Casey, we have a caller. I want to ask you more about this study, mainly because I took it. <laughs> and I'm going, hmm, what does my score mean? But we do have a caller. So let's check on our caller. And uh, caller, are you there? Yes, I'm here. This is Rita. Okay, do you want to give us your first name and where you're from? Sure, this is Rita Henley Jensen, and I'm editor-in-chief of Women's E-News. Hi, Rita. Rita, uh, Casey, I have to mention to you and, and give my plug for Women's E-News. Uh, I, I, we talked off air, Casey, and I said that my undergraduate degree is in journalism. And one of my, my crotchety old things, issues that I have in this day and age, is how poorly our media is presented. And uh, I have to say that on so many levels, Women's E-News, which is an online publication, has exemplary standards journalistically, not only in how it's presented, but how it's researched. And if you, Casey, if you're not familiar with Women's E-News, look it up. It's a wonderful resource. Rita, oh, thank great. you so much for calling in. Oh, well, thank you. And I, I guess I have two um, major questions that we may have to follow up on. One is the recent breast cancer study of African-American women. Um, that it, it was in the Times this week, and that indicated they had a much higher fatality rate, and that their rate of breast cancer incidence is uh, becoming comparable to white women. And of course, in the, the paragraph that that gives clues why this might be happening. They also they immediately mentioned first obesity, mm-hmm. and then uh, I, as you know, have done a lot of research on the extraordinarily high maternal mortality uh, incidents among African American women, and uh, obesity plays a role not uh, to the level that it does, but obesity does put. African American women in more health jeopardy. Hmm. I don't see anyone saying yes, and the level of abuse that African American women experience, whether that's in their community, 
in their families and might be at the hands of police or other authorities, et cetera, et cetera, uh, plays, probably will play a significant role mm-hmm. in their related health issues. So mm-hmm. if you could comment on that, and then I'll add my one more question, is let's look at the flip side, which I've never seen anyone explore, which is the benefit to children if their mothers leave the violent situation. Mm-hmm. It does that it does that compound like the earlier you leave, the better it is for the kids. Yeah. Okay. Those are my two <laughs> I I'm particularly fascinated with your second question, Rita. If I understand your first question, what you're asking is is that looking at the uh, uh high incidence of breast cancer tied to obesity, are we then tying obesity to childhood trauma? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Casey, do you have any information on that? Well, I think it's very interesting, Rita. I appreciate you kind of raising that issue. It hasn't been talked about a lot, but when you read the ACE study, and Dr. Flitty and I just did a national webinar on the ACE study, and this connection to cancer and to compromised immune systems and to coping mechanisms in life from trauma that often include very poor diet I think are connected to those things. It wouldn't surprise me at all to find a connection there. One of the things that we've seen in our work around childhood trauma is that there are dramatic multipliers that connect to childhood trauma that include historic oppression, that include racism, that include poverty, uh, and all of those things clearly have an impact. Dr. Felitti's kind of theory of it is that it connects in when it comes to cancer, which is now a correlation to the ACE study, that it connects to a compromised immune system in life. And I think that certainly uh, brings us back to the ACE study. We work with a lot of women of color uh, in the domestic violence world, And violence and abuse are somewhat overrepresented in communities of color, and I believe that's because of the connection to historic oppression. It's the connection to poverty. It has an impact on how systems respond uh, to communities and where the resources are to address issues. So I think there likely is a connection. Um, And, you know, it's obviously not the case that everyone who is obese or overweight has childhood trauma issues, but this issue of morbid obesity and its connection to trauma is very clear in the ACE study. And that, again, doesn't mean everybody, but it certainly can connect to a lot of folks that have trauma. Uh, so I think that's a very interesting issue, and we're we're trying to educate uh, a lot of women that we work with in family justice centers across America, our kind of multi-agency models, on this connection between health. We just did a national health survey And we found very significantly, no great surprise, that women of color, particularly of modest means and indigent women, immigrant women coming into this country that don't have health insurance, their health outcomes are obviously far worse. And I do think that connects to uh, breast cancer and it connects to the lack of early detection with breast cancer. So I do think those things are related very much so. I think that very interesting. I, I, you know, the the idea. I, I try to be very cautious with these ideas because I, I'm I'm very keenly aware that, especially in our society, we tend to blame the victim on everything, whether they're obese mm-hmm. or whether they have a heart attack. Uh, I, I, years ago, I knew a woman who worked in a hospice, and she dealt with many women, um, many people who were dying of cancer. And she said the saddest thing that she experienced is how many of those people blame themselves. For something they either didn't do right, they didn't eat right, they didn't exercise right, they didn't do that blame themselves for their own health issues, that their fatality. And I'm always cautious about that because yes, we can do a lot. Our attitudes do affect a lot, but ultimately nature wins. You know, <laughs> no matter what we do, you know. And so I, I'm. I I want to preface my my coming comment with that. Um, do we know? Uh, or uh, does the study indicate, or is there anything down the road that we're looking at about how trauma impacts overall uh, life expectancy and uh, incidence of of um, health care? 
Well, the ACE study really does uh, show that, Heather, and it's disturbing uh, to look at the outcomes so far and the published outcomes in the ACE study. Uh, the ACE score is a 10-point scale. It's not looking at cumulative trauma, by the way. It's only looking at these individual markers. So we'll talk a little bit later about this, but if you were molested once as a child or if you were molested 50 times, it doesn't change your score in the ACE study, which is somewhat controversial. But yes. if you're a six on ACE, if you have six of the ACE markers, on average, your life expectancy goes down 20 years. People die 20 years younger if they're a six on the ACE scale. And this has been well documented in numerous studies. And that's a disturbing reality. Now, they're not necessarily dying from the trauma. They may be dying from the coping mechanisms from the trauma. They may be dying from health impacts from things that have happened subsequent to the trauma. But overall, if you're a six on ACE, your life expectancy goes down 20 years. Wow. That brings us then to Rita's second question, which is, you know, the positive aspect, you know, is there, is there, are there any studies that you're aware of or, or have we learned anything about how quickly uh, if a, a, a mother, I'll use the typical scenario, the mother with the kids in an abusive situation, if she removes, the, the sooner she removes those children, is it really the better? Um, you just pointed out that on the ACE scores it's not reflected. Um, but that whole issue of cumulative trauma um, sounds like it would be a logical conclusion that the faster you could remove a child from that environment, the better it would be. Have, do we know well, anything I about the, that? Yeah, I believe the answer to that is yes. And it, I agree with you on this complicated issue of shaming victims and blaming victims. Uh, I think that's a, a topic we need to talk about and be very sensitive about. But the reality is that the less exposure to trauma, the better in the long-term impacts on children. Now, some children are more resilient than others. They're naturally more resilient, and they tend to have the ability to overcome trauma more than others. Others have certain kind of resiliency factors or what we call protective factors in their lives. So those protective factors, factors tend to mitigate the um, impact of trauma they're experiencing. But in general... Yes, it's much better for children to be removed from ongoing abuse than to stay in the abuse. And even though the ACE study doesn't look at the cumulative impact of trauma, there isn't a psychologist or a therapist uh, that I know that I've ever worked with that wouldn't say that the sooner we can end the traumatic events that are going on in a child's life and begin to mitigate that, the sooner we can move toward hope and healing. And very often when uh, adult survivors of abuse, uh, when, when vic adult victims of abuse realize the impact that, that being exposed is having on their children, they are more likely to leave. When they, being educated, not being blamed, but being educated about the impact on brain development, the impact on emotional development, the way that violence creates norms in a child's life on what they think is normative and what they think is the way all families are, the sooner we can end that in a child's life, the better. Uh, so, you know, once you get to the age of 18, your ACE score is pretty much decided. You can't ever change that ACE score. But when you're 8, 9, or 10, you can change that ACE score because it can still go up. And if you get the child out of that traumatic situation, that ACE score isn't going to go up and isn't going to continue to accelerate if you can get the child to safety and to a safe environment where they can start kind of addressing what's, what they've gone through. Rita, does that answer your question? It does, except, um, I, I, yes, I guess I, it's a yes and. And what I guess I would say is, that I feel enormously let down by the psychological researchers in that so many, like me, as you know, Heather, believe strongly that the family structure, uh, you know, extended family structure, everyone believed that children needed a father and that if I were to leave, I would be depriving my children of... Uh, and you know, well-being, mm -hmm. and I haven't really seen that. And uh, Heather, and not to you, yes, 
that the abuser is a mother, the same should be true. The children need a mother. And um, our intuition tells us differently. And as uh, your guest makes clear, our experience says differently. But the larger culture says children need both parents. And I won't even mention the Republican candidate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, that's not that's not this week's show, Rita. Um, I, I I really appreciate your comment about that because I know when we're dealing with courts, and I'm sure Casey, you've had seen this experience. Um, I mean, I've interviewed family court judges who will give me a song and dance about how you know why the justification for awarding full custody to an abuser, somebody with documented mm-hmm. abuse in his background, um, and in in their minds, it makes perfect sense because the child needs the father, um, and I contend that no child needs somebody who's abusive to them, period. You know, whatever benefits they might have from that contact is completely outweighed and overshadowed by the abuse. Um, so I have, that's one of my little pet peeves here, is, you know, especially the court system that seems to, the family court system seems to wholeheartedly buy into this notion of every child mm-hmm. needs their father, um, or, you know, for that matter, any, I, I don't care whether it's the father or the mother, I think that if that parent is abusive, Boom! That that negates any positives that could possibly come from that. Have you had experience with that, Casey? Yeah, I certainly agree with you, Heather, and I agree with Rita on that. This kind of notion that somebody can be an abusive spouse and still be a good parent uh, is a really uh, is a really is really a failure to understand the impact of trauma and abuse because children are so profoundly impacted. When you're talking about growing up in the middle of that, you're talking about brain development, uh, you're talking about emotional development, and there's just no research that says that verbal abuse, emotional abuse, psychological abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse is a good thing or that it somehow totally goes away in its impact if you just keep two biological parents uh, together or keep two biological parents in a child's life when one or both of them is abusive. Uh, The complicated other side of that is that we don't do a very good job in this country of caring for those children. We have to remove them from the situation completely. So obviously our first goal is always trying to identify a parent that's protective, a parent that's not violent and abusive. In the domestic violence situation, there's such an overlap to child abuse, you know, the co-occurrence of child abuse and domestic violence when there's an adult perpetrator in the home is anywhere between 50 and 75%, depending on the study you look at. So removing a child from an abusive parent and keeping a child safe is profoundly protective. And even though kids can overcome that, and a lot of kids do grow up with violence and abuse and go on to be healthy and functional adults, which we can talk about as we go here this morning, I still think that it's a real misnomer to say you can be violent and abusive toward a spouse, but you should really stay in your child's life fully because, after all, you can still be a good parent to that child. I do believe in restoration and redemption, though, and I do believe that some violent and abusive adults can choose to be different. They can choose to get help. They can choose to make different choices about how they treat their partner and their children, whether they're together or not. Uh, So I do believe in that, but a lot of that norming and forming uh, for adult abusers happened when they were children. And changing that gets tougher and tougher the older they get. Well, and I think that, you know, that comment, uh, which I agree with in theory, presupposes that somebody wants to change. And so often with abusers, they don't see anything wrong with their behaviors. They're doing what's right in their minds. So why on earth would they... Right. If we if we didn't make them so blah blah blah, if we had washed the dishes on time or whatever. Yes. Right. Exactly. You know, it's always somebody else's fault, and of course, that's the you know, abusers are notorious for that. It's always somebody else that made them do this. You know, Um, somebody else is responsible. Um, I I always say with uh, abusers, the the victim has a hundred percent of the responsibility and zero percent of the authority. At least in their in their mind, you know, in the in the perpetrator's mind, you know. So Rita, well, thank you the so great much. No more in. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay. Sorry. I'll sign off. Well, that's and, and I will continue listening. Thank you. Thank Heather. you so Bye. much, Rita. Bye. Thank Women's Rita. E-News. Everybody should go there and check it out. Okay. So Casey, uh, do you agree with my comment about wanting to change and? 
I do. And, of course, being violent and abusive is always a choice. And, you know, the great misnomer is that somehow uh, people can't make different choices, and they can. Even people growing up with internalized rage from violence and abuse can make a decision to make different choices in their lives. And I think it's rightly so why when someone is an adult and they, they make choices to be violent and abusive, society seeks to hold them accountable for those choices. I'm not an apologist for people that make violent choices as adults and abuse children physically and sexually and say, well, they were abused too as kids, so it's okay. We have to take a stand and say that uh, it's there's adult responsibility for adult choices. And, you know, when somebody ends up killing someone or somebody kills a police officer or, or kills their spouse, there's not much sympathy in society for what went on in the killer's life before they became a killer. And I actually agree with that sentiment. They've got to be held accountable for choices they make as adults. However, if we don't look upstream, if we don't focus at what's going on at the top of the cliff instead of the bottom of the cliff, which is where we spend most of our time, we're not going to be able to prevent this in the future. We're not going to become a community that starts seeing less people at the bottom of the cliff. Uh, we've got to get to the top of the cliff if we're really going to make change in our society. Well, and I think that the whole analogy of the, of the top of the cliff is a very good one because we do studies on the aberrant behavior. We do studies on the bad things, but for those of us who grew up in, in a certain level of dysfunction, you have to reach a certain level of adulthood before you realize, oh, wait a minute, that was there was something wrong with that, because mm-hmm. as you're going through it, it's just normal. It's normal as everything else, um, and so you know you you require a certain level of maturity before you can understand there was something wrong with that, and I have to learn something different. Is that consistent mm-hmm. with your experience? Absolutely. One of the things I basically talk about in caring for the children is this whole notion that uh, you do get to realize at some point you have a lot of opportunities in life to realize that you can make different choices than your parents, that you can make different choices than maybe the adults that you grew up with. And I think we have to teach responsibility at the same time that we teach the significance of intergenerational transmission of trauma and abuse. So both of those things are not mutually exclusive from each other. I think they're very much intertwined. One of the things you mention in your book is gang violence associated with childhood trauma, which is not an association that I made before. Um, Can you talk a little bit about why uh, abused children would tend to gravitate toward gangs? Yeah, there's a fair amount of research, of course, around this, but I just kind of pull it together in cheering for the children. And the reality is that first-generation gang membership is almost always about dysfunctional family environments. Very few kids growing up in healthy, functional homes end up joining gangs. Even if they're in neighborhoods where there's violence and abuse or in with a lot of community violence, kids that end up in first-generation gang membership usually are looking for a family. They're looking to belong. They're looking to be part of something. They're looking for something that they don't have at home. And I do think it can connect to an absent father. I do think it can connect to dysfunction in the home, whether there's one parent or two. But we miss this in the gang world because the longer gangs go on, after the first generation, gangs get much more complicated in communities. They become almost like organized crime syndicates. They become very much you know, kind of intertwined with the way a community operates. And then it's hard to see where the gang started or where first-generation gang membership came from. But at the beginning, I believe they're always, when they're pursuing gangs, particularly young people, they're looking for respect, belonging, to get out of the situation. I think it connects the same way to trafficking victims in many cases. They're looking for something that, that that's missing in their lives, and they they unwisely think, that the gang or the, the trafficking operation, the boyfriend or the pimp, is going to be the one that's going to give them what they don't have. Mm-hmm. So 
one of the things that, you know, in going through the ACE test, and I wanted to go back to that because it, it, it's, it is so simple, and yet it can reveal a lot. As you mentioned, of course, there are, you know, drawbacks to it, and, you know, in, in some ways it's too simple, but for what it does, it's an amazing instrument. Um, I think most of us realize that if you grew up in a family with domestic violence or you grew up in a family with alcoholism, that there's probably a good uh, case that you might be traumatized by that of those events. But you also talk about witnessing acts of violence, whether it's in the media or in the community. You talk about you know the gangs. You talk about um, homicide. You know where how many traumas can children be exposed to? Uh, I mean, it's just astounding to me how many opportunities there are. Why Why are there any children walking around? You say about a third of the people who take the test um, have a, a, a score that indicates that they really haven't had a traumatic childhood. That means that two-thirds of us have, but it also means that there's a third of children out there who have been protected from all of this awful stuff. How have they remained protected by, from that? Well, it's obviously... Uh you know, a very interesting thing to analyze. You know, my wife is a zero on the ACE scale. She grew up in a functional home. There was no violence or abuse of any kind. She wasn't molested. She wasn't physically abused. Her parents were not verbally and emotionally abusive. Uh, She had a healthy, functional home. It doesn't mean she doesn't have challenges in her life or issues that she deals with. But as far as the ACE scale, she's a zero. Uh, I said in cheering for the children that I was a three on the A scale. My sister just recently read the book and said she thinks I'm at least a four. Um, And I'm (laughs) minimizing and rationalizing some of the things that went on in our home. And I probably do to some extent. We all do. I mean, I believed growing up that I was in a normal home. I mean, I I had a mother and a father, which in and of itself was significant to me because Um, A lot of my friends' parents got divorced when they were very young and they lived with either their dad or their mom. So I was very thankful to have two parents. I would have described my home as in in functional and healthy until I, you know, got to law school and then became a prosecutor. And and my father was a good man who did amazing things in his life. However, my father did to me and to my brother uh, in the name of discipline things that Uh, his father did to him. And as I became a prosecutor, I started sending people to jail and prison for things that my father had done to me. And so that was the real eye-opener for me, you know, in this journey was beginning to think back and say, wow. And my dad was bipolar. My dad grew up in a home being punched in the head by his father every morning to be awakened. I didn't know that until uh, after my father passed away from a heart attack. I learned that from my mother in her 80s talking about my dad. So my dad had never even told me that when he was alive. But my dad had a ton of trauma. My grandfather, I believe, was both a batterer and a child abuser, even though he was a wealthy businessman in Seattle, Washington, and very well respected. In 1937, he was called the wealthiest man in Seattle, Washington. There are buildings with my grandfather's name on them in Seattle, Washington, even today. So my grandfather was a very well-esteemed, you know, high-profile citizen in Seattle, Washington, 75 years ago. And yet uh, he he raised eight children with violence and abuse. We have a suicide in my dad's family connected to one of the boys that grew up with that violence and abuse that never got over and eventually killed himself in Bellevue, Washington. So this notion of kind of what's normal and whether our families are all normal, uh, I think is an interesting one. But the reality is that there are kids that grow up with a zero on ACE. Uh, I interviewed all three of my children for cheering for the children. I'm a grandpa. My kids are all grown now. Two of them are married. Um, And all three of my children scored a zero on the ACE scale. They weren't abused as children. I did not... um, physically or sexually abused them. I didn't hit their mother in front of them. I wasn't verbally and emotionally abusive. However, one of the things that was disturbing in writing Cheering for the Children was I asked my children how they felt that my issues, some of my issues from my own trauma impacted them. And there were still impacts. A generation later, there are things that went on in my home, how I dealt with conflict, I'm a stuffer. I shut everything down. If I get upset with my wife or my kids, I don't talk at all. I just stuff it. 
And that had an impact on my kids. It was very difficult for them to deal with conflict in our home. Even though my wife and I never yelled at each other, we never argued in public, uh, but even my trauma from childhood had an impact. So I think it's the reality. It doesn't mean we have to blame ourselves for it or say, oh, I was a terrible parent or I did this or that. But understanding it and understanding how it has an impact on the next generation, I think, is the beginning of healing it and getting rid of the shame from it and saying, you know, it is what it is, and we need to be able to talk about it and be honest about it. One of the things, I mean, it's it's incredibly difficult to raise children. Um, Only (laughs) the very young and the very naive think that it's not. It is incredibly (laughs) difficult, you know. Uh, And and, uh, I, like you, you know, try to do the best for my children, but yet I can see how the impacts from what I grew up with you know, came through and impacted them as well. And that's the beauty of having adult children. They tell you all about that, don't they? Um, <laughs> they're perfectly willing to tell you what you should have done better. Um, <laughs> but uh, but one of the things that I think um, bothers me so much is that I always, or, or, and impacted my parenting, is that once I realized that what I grew up with was not a normal scenario, or even a healthy scenario, mm-hmm. I spent the rest of my life as a parent, as a worker, as a, as a woman, kind of testing the waters on everything. Is this normal? Mm-hmm. Is this not normal? Is this normal? Is this, you know, uh, I mean, my children laugh at me now because I would always say things like, normal people don't do this, or normal people do this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which they think is wildly amusing. But from my perspective, I, I, I just had to keep testing, you know. Mm-hmm which leads me to the question of if you did grow up with this kind of trauma what can you do about it what you know i mean do are we all destined to spend years in psychotherapy are we just destined <laughs> to just let the chips fall where they may um and then i want to talk about the camp which is what you have put together to try and nip this in the bud but as adults when we're realizing this what what do we do well one of the things i talk about in caring for the children is that um Talking about it and being able to understand what trauma is and what it means to be trauma-informed in dealing with it. For me, the start is what happened. What happened to you as a child? What went on in your home? To begin to norm the willingness to tell the truth. And it's not about shaming or blaming. It's about being able to talk about it. And when I tell my story, I travel the country. I travel about 200 days a year, speak all over the country. When I tell my story, people come up and tell me their story. And in many cases, it's often the first time they've really articulated things that happened to them as a child. And I think the beginning of this is, is telling the truth about what happened and being finding people you can trust and you can share with to be able to just start to communicate. Most of violence and abuse happens. It's secret. It's kept secret. There's a shaming in society that happens around it. And we don't like to talk about it. It's hard to talk about. So... And one of the things I talk about from 100 years ago was this notion of the talking cure and how cathartic it is to begin to talk to people that you can trust, that are safe, that are close to you about the truth. And sometimes that may be a professional counselor or therapist. I actually don't think that most people necessarily need professional counseling or therapy, but they need to be able to have people that they're safe with, that they can talk to things about, that have a a perspective that allows them to step back from their lives and help them process what's gone on or what, what they've experienced. It's why you shouldn't be raising kids alone. You should be in a community. And I support, as I did in Trink, that so, you know, I, Hillary Clinton many years ago kind of made famous the African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. But I say in cheering for the children, it matters who's in the village. And it matters what they're doing to the children. It's not just a village to raise a child. It matters who's in the village. So we all need a village. We need a group of people around us. And it can't be, if, we're, if we grew up in a violent and abusive home, it just can't be other family members that are violent and abusive. We've got to find a village of people that have a diversity of experience and a diversity of background that we can start to figure out, you know, what's normal and what's not normal and what's unhealthy and what are other people doing and beginning to step back a little bit from our lives at times, I think, is an incredibly important part of this journey for all of us. One of the pivotal 
moments for me came when in in understanding um, what I grew up with was my sister and I. I had one sibling. She's since passed away, unfortunately. But she and I could get together and rehash some of the stuff, but we would laugh. I mean, we'd laugh about it. Remember when Mom did this or, you know, this happened, blah, 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 and we'd laugh hysterically about it. And I was talking to a friend of mine once, and I think I was still in my early 20s, and I was telling her this, what I perceived as this funny little family story that my sister and I would have laughed about. And I looked at her face, and she was just absolutely stricken. And she said, <laughs> oh, I am so sorry. <laughs> and and I looked at her, and I thought, this is a funny story. Why are you sorry? You know? <laughs> yeah. um, and it made me question whether the story was really that funny. You know? <laughs> and, and humor is a great it, coping mechanism, though. I mean, humor it, is a great coping mechanism. And I couldn't joke about it when I was 17, when my dad had his first uh, manic-pressive uh, kind of neurosis or psychotic break. It wasn't funny then, but all these years yeah. later, kind of even I and my siblings chuckle about it that when my I was seventeen, my dad when my dad had a break from a lot of stuff that had happened to him as a child and he'd go into these manic episodes. Uh he he was very grandiose. He was a visionary, he was a dreamer, he was a big picture guy. So when he was seventeen, he decided he needed to find Richard Nixon. Uh, I was seventeen years old. He was the director of a Christian camp in California. And he decided to f- go find Richard Nixon in San Clemente to ask him to apologize to the American people. And that wasn't a good strategy for my dad to be hunting for Richard Nixon, the, the uh, things called secret service agents. But I sent but the book the, here, the, Casey, the, the my, my the search story, for Richard Nixon. Yeah. <laughs> the funny part of the story is uh, I think my dad was right in his psychosis. I mean, that if Richard Nixon has apo- had apologized to the American people, that they would have forgiven him. And that was my dad's theory, was Richard Nixon would be better remembered in history if he could just convince him to just apologize. Said, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> He's probably right. And I actually think and there I, was some I used truth to, to that. I used to uh, work peripherally with, with child sex offenders. And, and uh, one of the, I remember a particular training that I went to, and, and they said, if you are a, a pedophile and you want victims, just join a group or a church or whatever, stand up in front and say, I am a, I was a pedophile and I am so sorry and I have repented because we love mm. to forgive people and we, mm. <laughs> you know, we would just you know be handing our children yeah, toward you the, because we wanted to, you know <laughs> so he's, he's probably right he was probably right about Richard Nixon <laughs> let's talk about the camp because the whole idea of this camp is so amazing to me let's talk specifically about the camp you know, it really is the passion of my life. It started out being called Camp Hope San Diego. It was part of the San Diego Family Justice Center back in the early 2000s, and we had kids coming from domestic violence shelters in San Diego and from the Family Justice Center. We took them out to a camp in East San Diego County. We were just camping, actually. We had platforms. We actually had teepees. We were on uh, um former Kumeyaay uh, Nation land, and so we would camp with the kids, and we didn't have a lot of programming around it. Our goal was just to give children their childhood back, so we taught them wakeboarding and water skiing and tubing. We went kayaking. We did all kinds of fun stuff, and that was the early years of Camp Hope, and the kids were so excited about it and loved it, and we'd see them change over the course of the week of a of a camp. We didn't we didn't really understand what was happening. It was just it was great to hear them laughing and kids that were living in a domestic violence shelter and hiding to suddenly be out there hiking and, you know, seeing deer, uh, you know, on a hike and, and getting to play in the water and seeing the stars at night. So that was kind of the beginning of Camp Hope. I grew up in the camping environment. My dad had been a camp director. So I knew how transformative uh, camping is and how kind of it takes you out of your environment and lets you kind of be in a different place. But it wasn't until years later, um, Camp Hope actually fell apart in San Diego in 2009, 2010. Uh, our, our nonprofit, Alliance for Hope International, was so busy starting family justice centers around the world and doing a lot of other work that we turned Camp Hope over to another nonprofit. And I'm sorry to say they just ran it into the ground and shut it down. And in that journey, it was one of the great heartbreaks of my life in 2009-2010 to see Camp Hope San Diego end. But in 2012, one of our family justice centers up in Redding, California, 
uh, led by a man named Michael Burke, who now works for us at Alliance for Hope International. Michael wanted to start a Camp Hope with a woman named Angela McClure, who was their victim witness director. And they started a Camp Hope. And my wife and I went up and spoke that week. I got to speak to the kids at the campfire every night. They had 80 kids together. It was a bit of a chaotic week with (laughs) way too many kids. Uh, But... Michael really challenged me and really inspired me to restart Camp Hope. So we restarted it in San Diego in 2012 uh, based on the inspiration from what's now called One Safe Place, which is the Family Justice Center and Shelter up in Redding, California. Uh, And then uh, we got an opportunity, some doors opened, to be able to go statewide in 2013 uh, 2014. We partnered with a camp up on the Oregon border called Kidder Creek and this last summer, we had 400 children and teens come to camp from family justice centers and domestic violence shelters all over California. But as part of these last couple of years, we met a whole team of researchers at the University of Oklahoma, led by a man named Dr. Chan Hellman, who is a hope researcher. And Dr. Hellman researches hope. I, I didn't even know five years ago you could measure hope in the life of a trauma-exposed adult or child, but you can. And so he challenged us to let him do a study of our camp and not just feel-good experience, but let's see whether it's actually changing children's hope scores. And it became so profound, Heather, because once we know a child's ACE score and the bad things that are going to happen and may happen to a child growing up with a high ACE score, the big question now, not just in California but across America, is how do you change the ending? How do you change the outcomes from a high ACE score? And we decided the answer is hope. If we can increase hope, we can help kids go down a different path than they might otherwise go down. So we've been measuring hope for the last three years at camp. Uh, Other communities have started creating a camp hope using our curriculum and our model. So we're going to start to almost kind of franchise it across the country. And the hope increases from kids coming to camp are just stunning. And we're now working with with Verizon Wireless. And Verizon wants to help us create a model so that we actually have a program for the kids all year long. So they come to camp for a week. That's the culmination, really. But then they come back from camp and they get to be in what we're going to call hope circles, where they're meeting with the kids they went to camp with, with their counselors, with their adult kind of volunteers, or what we're going to call coaches, life coaches that will be with them in this journey. So I am so excited about Camp Hope, and we're starting to brand around Camp Hope America. So we've got a website, camphopeamerica.com, that we're building right now. If you go to it right now, it connects to Camp Hope California. But we're going down this road, and I am convinced that we can change the destinies of thousands of children uh, in this journey. And when I interviewed kids, Heather, for for the book, uh, when I kids and adults, it became very clear to me not mo- not everybody that ends goes up in childhood trauma, you know, ends up self-destructing or ends up in prison or ends up in trouble. And my question became, what's the difference? What's the difference between those that grow up with violence and abuse that have healthy functional adulthood and those that don't? And there's two things as far as we can tell, and the research is bearing this out. The kids that make it out, the kids that go a different pathway, have a cheerleader, a mentor. They can point to somebody, adults looking back and say, I had a teacher or a coach or it was my mother or in some cases it was my father. Or They can point to mentors in their lives that I call cheerleaders. And then they can say, and I had a way to get there, what we call a pathway. So my, our whole premise for Camp Hope is every child needs a cheerleader and every child needs a pathway. And that's how you change the ending for trauma-exposed kids. Amazing. You know, when I was talking earlier about the realization that I had as an adult when the person didn't laugh at my little amusing story, it sounds to me like you're giving these children years ahead of that experience. So if that was an experience that I had in my 20s, you're getting these kids and, and giving them those realizations when they're still young enough where they can really... Um, affect change in their lives and in their growing up lives. Is that is that the case? I think that's definitely the case. You know, the, the National No More campaign, which is a great campaign that a lot of national domestic violence organizations are involved in to try to reduce sexual assault and domestic violence in America, they just 
uh, supported a documentary called Love Struck. Uh, it's called Love Struck, the documentary. A amazing woman named Fonalori Williams from New York is the film producer. And she came to Camp Hope last summer, and she interviewed a bunch of Camp Hope kids at camp. And one of them, an amazing little boy named Justice, he's 12. This is his fourth year coming to Camp Hope. Uh, his mom gave permission, and Justice gave an interview to Honolori for this documentary. And the insight that he has after four years of coming to camp and being with kids that have been through the same stuff he's been through and realizing that, you know, his some of his responses and his internal anger and rage about what happened to his mom and what happened to him, it's not a disorder. I mean, that's why I, I hate the phrase PTSD. It's it's post-traumatic stress, but it's not post-traumatic stress. Justice doesn't have a disorder. He has a a normal response to an abnormal situation that he's experienced in life. But he's so articulate now at 12, talking about how he blamed his mom for the violence and abuse until he came to camp and realized the violence was his dad's fault and his stepdad's fault. And it was the men that were abusing his mother and abusing him. It wasn't his mom's fault. It's so inspiring to me to hear Justice talk in this documentary because that's what every child can begin to do. And we can help children contextualize what's happening to them and camp isn't all therapeutic. I mean, we go whitewater rafting on the Klamath River. You know, we go in high ropes courses. We ride horses. We do a ton of art and drama activities with the kids. But the goal is to help them realize that there's there's not shame in growing up in this, that they can talk about it with others, and they're not the only ones that have experienced it. And my dad used to say, one of the amazing, my dad was an amazing man for all of his issues. He used to say that a person with an experience is never at the mercy of a person with an argument. And oh. your experience is power. Your journey through trauma, that's power. Uh, people can cite statistics all day long about child abuse or domestic violence. But, man, when you talk to a survivor and survivors get to tell their story and they realize that they're not who they are in spite of what happened to them, they're who they are because of what happened to them, and they can talk about it and they can celebrate their strength and their resiliency and they can celebrate the things that have allowed them to survive this. And then we figure out with the kids how to build on those things, those strengths they have that got them through the situations. They were in terrible situations. Last summer, our average score at Camp Hope, we administered ACE to kids 11 to 17 at camp last summer. Their average score was seven. Seven. Wow. Wow. Um, at the same you know, time, we Casey, just did I could ACE just with kids. You for, I could listen to this forever, but I'm looking at the clock and I'm going, oh my gosh, what what happened to our time here? And I <laughs> do so want you to get out the information for people to get the book. The name of your book is Cheering for the it's Children. Cheering for the Children. Creating Pathways to Hope for Children Exposed to Drama. And um, it is, how can people get this? Is it on Amazon, I'm assuming? You can access it at Amazon.com. You can access it at FamilyJusticeCenter.com in our own store on our website for the Family Justice Center movement uh, or on Amazon, either one. It's available both places. Okay. And if people are interested in helping or getting more information about Camp Hope or about Family Justice Centers, where would they go? Yeah, you can go to allianceforhope.com, which is our umbrella organization. We're building a new website, but we've got a site up, temporary site up right now at allianceforhope.com. Or you can go to camphopeamerica.com and learn more about camp. We want to see it go across America. And we want to see organizations connect with us so that we can develop camping programs everywhere with mentoring attached to it to change the destinies of children. Wonderful. Wonderful camp. I, I'm so sorry we've run out of time because I really wanted to about some of the ways you address uh, some of your, your evidence-based programs, your, your uh, dealing with the childhood trauma, but that will have to be a second show, so you'll have to come back. <laughs> Thanks so much, been a Heather, delight to be with to, you. to speak with you. And, and I have to say, can, can I say here that my score was a four, and mm. I benefited. I really benefited from reading your book, even now, even at this stage in my life. So um, I recommend the book. Get it. It's great. I always end our show with a quote, and um, it, you know, uh, so many of the qu- I, I try to find quotes that are are um, a little bit hopeful, no matter what our topic is. And I think I found one. This is from an author, Michael Gruber, and he wrote "The Good Son." As a matter of fact, I had a terribly traumatic childhood, but afterward, I sort of re-raised myself. 
And I think that mm-hmm. uh, when we don't have resources out there, uh, we do have to kind of re-raise ourselves. And uh, thankfully, there are places like Camp Hope that can help people do that. So thank you so much, Casey Gwynn, for being with us. Um, I've learned a lot. I've enjoyed speaking with you. I wish you continued success. And thank you for being on our show, Three Women, Three Ways. Please join us next week. We'll tackle another topic having to do with domestic violence issues. So thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways.